You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies, this is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Justice is Served here on Black Hollywood Live. My name is Chelsea Galicia and I am joined by my co-host Shaka Smith to bring you the latest and perhaps greatest of this week's uh, legal stories in the news. Just in case this is your first time joining us, um, again, my name is Chelsea and I am a workers' compensation attorney who's just born and raised here and around L.A., but Shaka's a little more interesting than that. He comes from Miami, then went to Princeton undergrad and D.C. for law school, and then moved out here to L.A. about five years ago to pursue acting and fitness modeling. And I've just been a workers' compensation attorney since the womb, practically. <laughs> um, we've got a great but abbreviated show for you today because later on we are going to be taping the special for Making a Murder. Yes. We're really excited yeah. about that. And uh, so so we put most of the focus this week on that show. And so we still have some crucial stories that we wanted to bring you this week before we go over there. So we'll invite you to join us for Making a Murder later over on After Buzz. But before that, we've got to get to this week's legal news. The first being breaking news in the Bill Cosby case. So this week, Bill Cosby's attorneys were in court arguing to the judge that this these charges should be dropped. And when I mean these charges, the indecent uh, sexual assault in Pennsylvania. Right, yeah. against Andrea Constant that he was arrested for in yeah. December, just like months before mm-hmm. the um, the deadline. The oh, Why yeah. can't I think of the word? <laughs> uh, the the statute, statute of limitations, limitations was yeah. about to run out, and the DA, all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, pressed this charge against Bill Cosby, and now his attorneys are arguing that the charge needs to be dropped because there was a deal with the prosecutor that the prosecutor would not go after him for this charge specifically. And that is why Bill Cosby participated in his deposition in the Andrea Constant matter, where he disclosed some very uh, salacious details, including using quaaludes and things like that, which have then turned around and back now to to sort of bite him. Yeah. So over the last, uh, well, two days, I guess yesterday and today, mm-hmm. the defense attorneys were saying there was an oral yeah, deal with the right. prosecutor to not uh, press charges yeah. and that that's the only reason why the attorney allowed his client to sit for this deposition. This has been going on for like a day straight. We were supposed to hear this morning. Then the judge wanted to go to lunch to hear more from the prosecutor who said that this is not true. Somebody can't buy their way out of prosecution. And just within the last hour, the judge decided. Chaka, what do you want to tell us what he said? Yeah, well, the the judge said um, the case will absolutely proceed. Um, it was a troublesome case from the beginning. The logic made sense. You know, we were promised a complete and total immunity, and that is why he went and got um, he went and did the deposition for the civil case. But see, and here's the thing: if you even when you do a deposition, you participate. If there are specific questions yeah. that you don't want to answer, you can assert your Fifth Amendment. Yeah. So for his attorney to say that's why I let him be 
involved or participate at all in the deposition mm-hmm. just doesn't make sense. Well, the reasoning was, well, because the former DA came on the stand and the former DA testified that this was, in fact, true, that there was a verbal agreement made. So that was 11 years ago, 11 years ago. So we did establish that 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 took place. Um, But he said he did so because he felt that the victim would not get um, would not get justice in in legal court. So that this way it opened the door for Cosby to testify in a deposition in the civil matter. And maybe she could at least get some recompense financially. Well, and then I saw that he said that they didn't prosecute because they didn't believe that the victim had enough credibility. Yeah, and she, at the time, you know, the story had changed a a few times from her. I understand that they said they didn't like the fact that she went to go see a civil attorney first before going to police. And she didn't go to police right away. I think it was close to a year that yeah. she and the waited. story had changed over um, several times over this period of time so she they felt they didn't really couldn't really build a strong legal case but if they gave him this immunity he might kind of hang himself for the civil case and at least she can get some sort of justice in that in that sense um, however you know y- these kind of agreements y- you can't have a verbal agreement to not be prosecuted for eternity there's a reason we say put that in writing right and uh, y- you have to have some reliability of the court system to not be manipulated by those who are wealthy. Because we don't know in the last 11 years how much money may have transferred hands between the former DA and Mr. Cosby. We're not allowed that opportunity for investigation. So that's why when these deals are made, they're best made in writing. They can't be secret. Yeah. Otherwise, can you imagine everybody and their mother would be like, oh, oh hey, wait I a minute. I also had a verbal agreement. Yeah. yeah. So it's with good reason that this argument did not fly. Yes. And so there is no trial date as of this moment, although if I keep refreshing the story, we might find yeah. out about that soon. But on a positive note for Mr. Cosby, um, before this came down, the Chloe Goins, who had alleged sexual assault at the Playboy Mansion, she did dis- um, mis- dismiss her own lawsuit. So right. a little good and bad. All right. So that will be very interesting to see uh, what happens at trial. All right. And so now on to Laquan McDonald. We found a new detail about this case, and it involves the reason why the dash cam microphone didn't work. There's no audio on the video. You'll recall that this is a, a, a Chicago man who was moving away from police officers holding perhaps a small knife yeah. when he was shot 16 times. Yeah. And there was no audio, and now we know why. It, well, it turns out um, Jason Van Dyke, the cop involved, had tampered with his dash cam. And on this particular time... And intentionally. He intentionally tampered with yeah. his dash cam. He had done so before. And on this particular time, he made sure the mics were out of sync so it could not capture any audio. Yeah, and, apparently this is not the only time that this has happened, and he's not the only officer that has done this. I think that's what's more troubling is it seems like it's an accepted practice of the department. Yeah, 1,800 police maintenance logs show a trend of cops intentionally and routinely tampering with their dash cams and mics in an effort to block audio. Yeah. So pretty incredible. I'm, I don't know, maybe it is to some people and it, not to others, but yeah. oh my goodness. They say that they're going to come down hard on any officer who does this, but as of yet, yeah, we haven't seen anything. They're not charged with any obstruction of justice, no destruction of governmental property. At the very least. And I was thinking that beyond, uh, that those charges would be beyond what should happen for, you know, um, not doing your job. Um, there's a specific um, charge for officers who don't... Like dereliction of duty. Uh, correct. Who don't maintain... You know, just their basic duties to perform the job that the way that they're supposed to. And then on top of that, I think they should be charged with the same thing that you yeah. or I would be charged with if we tampered with those things. Absolutely. And I, it, it's so indicative of where we are. 
we've all had this discussion of why are these cameras not better? Why are we not getting audio sometimes? Why is the why is it so grainy? Why is the footage not better? And now it almost feels like a concerted attempt to kind of keep that technology from progressing to a point where the officers are absolutely held accountable for what they do on on the job. Yeah, it's unbelievable how often this happened. In less than a year from September 2014 to July 2015, there were 90 recorded instances of microphones missing from police cars. So I guess this is just has to be a community effort to keep the police accountable, to keep asking about the condition of the... Well, a a harsher penalty in the the police department would certainly stop them from being tampered with. Right. And then there were radio logs that do speak to what was going on at the time that Laquan McDonald was shot. And we we now know that there was an officer who asked if anybody had a taser. And of like eight officers on the scene, no one had a taser. Right. So clearly seven out of eight officers didn't feel that they were uh, threatened like with their life and that they wanted to take him down using non-lethal force. Yeah. But nobody had it on them, so instead one officer apparently just took it upon himself to kill the man. Yeah. Um, this officer has been charged, and uh, we're, we're pending the, the trial yeah. on that officer. Wow. All right, moving along to a case right here in California. Yeah, troubling. We, we talked earlier, at the, the first show of this year, we mm-hmm. talked about a new law in California that says that for digital things like emails and phone calls that the uh, authorities need a search warrant. Yeah. Okay, fine. So now we've found out that in the city of Anaheim, home of Disneyland, mm-hmm. for the last like six Yeah, since, yeah, was year, it 2009? 2009, yeah. that the Anaheim Police Department has been intercepting and listening to cell phone calls. Yeah. So how, how did they do this? Well, they're, they're using something called a dirt box, and it's a complicated technology that basically is able to reroute cell phone data at, um, as if it were a cell tower, and they're able to collect the cell phone data that way. You place a dirt box on an aircraft, and that's how it operates, um, and basically kind of go through cell phone encryption to get the, the data. And so they've been monitoring everyone. Um, and it looks Anybody like... Anybody that like is within the area whose cell phone sort of taps into that... Exactly, of Orange County. And so you're looking at... Because they... they lent this technology to different departments or all around Orange County. So you're looking at the 3 million residents of Orange County and up to 16 million people that visit Disney World and, and Disneyland annually. With no warrant? No warrant whatsoever. All right. So it seems to me that this is against the law, but who can if hold them accountable, if anyone? Well, I think um, the state government is going to have to hold them accountable. I mean, Under what law? They just passed the California Electronic Communications Privacy Act. We passed, It went into effect January 1st, 2016. So if the allegations show there was no violations after this, um, they may be in the clear. But if this is something that's ongoing and continues, then um, there's certainly a violation of that new act. Right, because this act doesn't go backwards in time. No. It's only no. from this year forward. Yeah. So I I wonder what exactly they were after. Well, the idea is that they're also capturing criminals' phone calls as well, and so they're able to, you know, intercept those. However, you're getting everyone's phone calls, so that's the problem. Gotcha. All right. Um, okay. Well, then finally, wow, we were not kidding when we said we had an abbreviated <laughs> show. I didn't know it would be this short. This one may take a little bit longer, though. Yeah. That's true, because this one is. Something similar to the Making a Murderer show that we're about to cover. This one is for a California man who is on death row. Yeah, a little bit more dire. Yeah, yeah so the state of California had 
placed a moratorium on uh, executions. executions until November, and mm-hmm. it lifted the um, that moratorium. And now there is a man, Kevin Cooper, mm-hmm. who is facing execution. There's no date set at the moment, but it's imminent. Yeah. Uh, as all of his appeals have been exhausted, but when you look at this case, it oh looks—it yeah. looks, it smells, it feels a whole lot like the kind of thing that we saw in *Making a Murderer*. So there was a family that was literally hacked to death yeah. in a really terrible um, story inside their own home in Chino Hills, which is in in Orange County. No, is that Orange County or Riverside County? I think it's Riverside yeah. County, perhaps. Um, and so some. Entered or persons entered this home and literally hacked to death a mother, father, and two children. And one child, an eight year old son, survived having his throat slashed. When originally asked, he said it was either three white white men or Hispanic guys that came in and did this. That did it. Yet we have a black man named Kevin Cooper on death row for these murders. Uh, there were m- several things that were just screaming like this is totally crazy, not cool, and that there was major violations of due process rights and fairness. And some court of appeals judges have even said that the state may be putting to death an, an innocent, innocent man. man. Yeah. What are some of the reasons why we the uh, the that those judges. Well, yeah. Let's thought. point out we had five five judges on the Ninth Circuit when they reviewed the appeal. Five said we might be putting to death an innocent man. Um, what, what really this case dealt with was the prosecution's exculpatory evidence that they did not hand over to the defense. And if people don't know what that is, um, that is when the prosecution actually has a duty to hand over to the defense information they've gathered that would be helpful to the defense, factual information. So this is not like a voluntary thing; it's yeah. mandatory. So yeah. when the prosecution has something that they know could even slightly be of help to the defense. They have to turn it over. Yeah, as long as it's a factual thing. It's, you know, they don't have to argue for the defense by any means. Um, and one of those things was the prosecution presented evidence that there was a shoe, a prison shoe, because Kevin Cooper was had, um, had, well, he had escaped, he had escaped, from, had escaped prison, from prison a, on a, a burglary minimal, charge. A minimal security yeah, facility. At, at, from a burglary charge. And that, that prison... Um, shoe that issued was on the print was a print of what was found in the home and the warden came out and said that's factually not true right so the the police officer somebody had testified yeah. that that shoe is not available for sale in the public yeah, so that's only shoe a prison issued shoe must have come from a prison issued shoe mm-hmm. And then the warden said that's not true, but the warden didn't say that on the stand. Said to the prosecution. Exactly. And And the the prosecution never turned over that testimony to the defense. Right. And so that was a big problem. Um, Another big issue was the blood. So they tested some blood that it did not match Kevin Cooper's. That was found at the scene. And they retested the blood, and then it did match Mr. Cooper's. However, the prosecution changed the original finding, so it was never clear that there was one false test. Right, and didn't turn that over. And didn't turn that over. And then... Um, more recent testing showed that what was found, there were two strands of DNA found in that blood vial. So that blood vial was contaminated with two separate strands of DNA, Mr. Cooper's and someone else's. Right. And so it could be an 
inconclusive test or could point to somebody else. And the defense never had knowledge. The, as far as the defense knew, when a test was made and it matched Kevin Cooper's DNA. Right. And then there was a woman who said that her estranged husband mm-hmm. could very have likely been the one to do this and that he came home that night with blood splatter on some pants. And he's now missing. Yeah. So right. the husband's missing and there's blood splatter on his coveralls. So she turns over these pants, coveralls, over to the police. Yeah, and wasn't he missing a hatchet too? Correct. His hatchet yeah. was missing also. too. And instead of testing those pants, the police dumped Literally them. throw them in the garbage. Unbelievable. And then also somebody saw on the night of the murder three white or Hispanic men driving down a dead-end road in a station wagon. Yep. And, and the family... station wagon had been stolen. Right. So yep. lots of things to line up a case against three white or Hispanic yep. men. But let's say, um, let's just add that Josh Ryan's testimony, the young kid, um, who initially said it was three white or Hispanic men, ended up changing his story at the time and said that it was Kevin Cooper that, that was in his home and Kevin Cooper that did these things to him. And that was largely um, influential in his conviction. Right. Um, but, you know, as we know, these kids are very susceptible to pressure. And we'll, we'll talk about Brendan Dassey in the Making a Murderer special. Absolutely. And, and now Josh at the time was only eight. Right. And so, and, and Kevin Cooper himself doesn't even blame Josh. Yeah. Knows that he was a young kid at the time and there was a lot of pressure on him to go along with the story that everybody wanted um, to, to say happened so that there could be certainty that the streets were safer. So now, you know, all the appeals have been exhausted. So even, you know, the Court of Appeals, there were several judges, five of them that said, this guy could very well be innocent, but yet the majority decided to not, you know, mistrial or ask get a new trial, nothing. They just let it go forward. Even though they felt the district court had not followed its order when it came to testing the blood again. And they even said that the prosecutors acted unlawfully. Yeah. In this case. And yet, this man is still on death row. And so his only chance is now an appeal to Governor Jerry Brown. For a pardon, yeah. Right. And I think one thing that was actually very... uh, On this show, we talk a lot about the disparity between race and the police and, you know, justice. But one thing Kevin Cooper said was, it doesn't matter about race. Everyone, no matter what race they are on death row, they're poor. Yeah. And I think that's such a big, big problem in this country is that poor people are not getting justice whatsoever. And so regardless of race, we need to make sure that we have a system that's a little bit more equitable. And, yeah, um, I think that's yeah. a fair statement. And uh, pretty powerful. He says, I am innocent, and it's not my execution. It's my murder. Yeah. So if you feel so inclined, you can actually, you know, perhaps petition the governor, Jerry Brown, to look very closely at this case. Yeah. It's interesting in the Stephen Avery case there was a bunch of people hundreds of thousands of people that petitioned president obama to do something about this but he has no power over the situation but in this case the governor does have uh power to look at this case closely and issue a pardon if he sees fit so you know if you'd like to be involved there is one way um other than that we will bring you the latest on that story and the rest yes Okay, guys, that is it for our abbreviated show today on this February 3rd, 2016. 
Thank you for joining me and Shaka. We will be back next week with another full-length episode of Justice is Served. And download us on iTunes and uh, give us your comments on Twitter and on YouTube. And don't forget to join us over on AfterBuzz TV for the special of Making a Murder. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Deanna Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us, info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio, Instagramming, at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.